you're new to Fellowship of the Rockies or if you haven't been around in the last few weeks. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the teaching pastors on staff at New Life Church. As your pastor, Pastor Charlie, has been away on sabbatical. We've been helping to fill the pulpit. And Charlie is back next weekend. Are you guys excited about that? So he's coming back rested and refreshed and uh, with a good word to preach to y'all. So it'll be so good just to hear about all the good fruit that comes out of that. You guys getting back together again and racing into all that God has for you. Uh, I'm going to conclude our series in Colossians tonight by talking out of Colossians chapter 4. And so I'll invite you to stand with me. And uh, we're going to read the scripture together. So Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And then uh, I'm going to conclude the reading of the scripture by saying this is the word of the Lord. And by now we all know it. We say... Thanks be to God, acknowledging that God is speaking to us. And then I'll say a prayer over us after that, and I'll have you be seated. And I want to give you a word on prayer tonight that I think will be uh, a nice little bookend uh, to our series in Colossians. So the Apostle Paul writes, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, devote yourselves. Everybody say, devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. And be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, Lord, we're here in your presence, and we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, that you've searched us and you know us. You know when we sit and when we rise, you perceive our thoughts from afar. You discern our going out and our lying down, and you're familiar with all of our ways. Before a word is on our tongue, the psalmist said, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem us in behind you before you've laid your hand upon us. Such knowledge as this, he said, is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit, he says? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And so we just acknowledge tonight that there is nowhere that we can go. There is nowhere that we can go to hide from you. The book of Revelation describes a moment where you arrive at the end of history and it says that earth and sky fled from your presence, but there was nowhere for them to go. (laughs) So would you help us just surrender ourselves to you tonight? We just pray that. We pray that you'd break down every barrier. We pray that you would break through every lie. And we pray that because of your rescuing work in us, that we'd find ourselves, just like we sang, coming alive in your presence all the more. And not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of the city that you love so much. So come. We pray that as we preach tonight, that uh, Christ Jesus, that you would stand up and preach in our midst tonight. And we ask that we would hear your words and follow after you all the days of our life. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says, uh, being watchful 
and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul here now is concluding his letter to the Colossians, and he's praised their faith, and he's told them of Jesus. He's spoken of Jesus being the deep reality of all things. Everything else is shadow to the fullness that is Christ. He's talked about how their lives via baptism, which we just celebrated tonight, are uh, wrapped up with Christ and God. He's called to them as the church to be the people of God. And then as he brings the letter in for a landing, he tells them something that I think is really important for us to hear. Devote yourselves to prayer. Everybody say devote yourselves. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, he says. And then pray for us too, that God may open a door for our ministry and for our message. It seems as though he's, by exhorting them to prayer, what he's doing is he's inviting them to be participants in the ongoing work of God through their ministry to Asia Minor. And so he's saying, uh, be watchful in prayer. So it's almost like a watchman on a wall, right? Paying attention, what is happening? There's like a spiritual watchfulness and then also gratitude, thankfulness for what God is doing. And so he's calling them into that. And it's like this, um, the picture that's painted is this sort of dynamic engagement that they have in what God is doing through prayer. And I love that he says to them, devote yourselves. The Greek uh, is an interesting word that means something like bind yourselves to it or fasten yourself to it. And I had to ask myself, you know, as I was reading this passage and studying a bit, why does Paul say that they ought to fasten themselves to prayer? And I think the most obvious answer that I know of, based on my experience as a Christian and as a pastor and what I have seen and experienced all through the years, is that I think that Paul tells them to devote themselves to prayer because it's really, really easy to become discouraged with prayer. Raise your hand if you have ever been discouraged with prayer before. Or you just go like, how many times have you been in prayer where you're just going, is this doing anything? Am I just wasting my breath? Am I just blowing smoke at heaven, hoping that, like, what are we doing? Is this just a fantasy? Is this just make-believe? Have we all just made this up? Like, what are we doing here? And I've told you, I've followed Jesus all of my life, and I've been discouraged in prayer. And there are times that it's been hard, and I needed to hear Paul's exhortation to hold fast, to devote myself to prayer, and so much, I would actually say that most of the fruit of my life has come out of that, that holding fast, even through discouragement, pressing through the discouragement. I think that there are a couple reasons why we get discouraged in prayer. Reason number one, it's because we believe errors about prayer, okay? We believe erroneous things about prayer. So I'm going to give you a couple erroneous things about prayer, and then I want to kind of paint the Bible's picture of prayer for you, okay? Here's error number one, error number one. And I think that we have a slide for this. Do we not have a slide for this? Aha, there it is. Error number one is that my prayer does everything. Error number one, my prayer does everything. Now prayer, I mean, you cannot read the Bible without running into prayer in some form or fashion. Human beings calling out to God. And so many of the great things that happen in the biblical witness happen because, precisely because, people lifted up their voices to God. One of the great moments in the history of the scriptures, certainly, is when the children of Israel were oppressed. They were slaves in Egypt. And the scripture says that they lifted up their voices to God, and the Lord heard. 
their cry. It was their groaning. And because he heard their cry, the scripture says, he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham. And because of his memory of the covenant, on the basis of their cry, salvation history goes into motion in a fresh way. God rises up on behalf of his people. I mean, the Psalms are just prayers, aren't they? Hear my voice when I call to you, the psalmist says. Hear me as I lift up my, my heart and my hands to you. God, where are you? Have you left us? Have you forsaken us? Come to our rescue, right? There are these urgent pleas that God seems to respond to. One great theologian says that the whole nature of our relationship with God really just is prayer. It's that God speaks to us in his word, in Christ Jesus, and his speaking to us actually awakens our speech back to him. God addresses us and we address God back. But to say that everything hinges on our prayers, I think is erroneous. And in the history of Christianity, we've actually had some really great thinkers have said things like this. One of the greatest thinkers of the church, a man by the name of John Wesley, actually said, and this is a quote that I heard a lot growing up, that it seems as though God does nothing except that men pray. Isn't that a great quote? Except that. <laughs> it puts a lot of pressure on us, doesn't it? And I grew up in a tradition where prayer was everything. Our prayer was everything. And we believed deeply that if you had enough faith and you really exercised that faith in prayer, that you would see all of the things that you wanted to happen, that those things would unequivocally happen. And you know, um, the best and the worst thing that happens in that arrangement is that you pray really hard for things. And then they don't happen. And you realize that it's not exactly true that God only does things through prayer. And I am actually, as a Christian, as a pastor, I'm so grateful that it's not true that God only does things in response to prayer. Because do you know, God knows better than we know what needs to happen on planet Earth. Can, can we admit that? So there's a lot of stuff that we pray for that I'm really glad that God does not answer, you know? The psalmist prayed, strike my enemies on the jaw, you know? He did. That's in the Bible, by the way. And you can pray that if you want, because the psalmist did. So the psalmist went before you and gave it a try. So if you want to give it a try, you can. And I'm grateful that God does not answer that prayer. He does go, dear sweet one, I know you're angry. <laughs> I'll take that anger. And meanwhile, I'm going to work on behalf of your enemies, those that have hurt you, in a way that's redemptive and blessing. I'm grateful that everything does not rest on my prayer, okay? Aren't you grateful for that? So error number one, my prayer does everything, is a huge error because it discourages us. All of a sudden, I have so many responsibilities and things in prayer to attend to. How is the great work of God going to be accomplished except that I pray? Well, fortunately for you, it's going to move along just fine. But... There's an error in the opposite direction, isn't there? And error number two would be that my prayer does nothing. Error number two, my prayer does nothing. That God, and I've run into this one, that God has an ironclad will. God's going to do what God is going to do no matter what we do about it. So prayer then in this arrangement, if in the first arrangement, prayer is trying to make everything happen, in the second arrangement, my prayer does nothing, prayer is like this passive uh, acquiescence to what God has already decided is going to happen. 
It's a sort of adjustment of the heart, isn't it? An adjustment of the mind. God, help me accept your will and receive your will. And you're going to do what you're going to do. So I pray that you would give me peace and repose and serenity and all of those things. And just help me walk with you in your will. Now, I want to say that there's actually something really noble about that. That willingness to just to accept what God wants to do. And to say, as Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. He turns his will over to the will of the Father. But I don't think that it's true that our prayer does nothing. At a minimum, even, I think it's worth noticing the hypocrisy, subtle hypocrisy, but hypocrisy nevertheless, of praying, God, help me to have peace in the midst of your will. That adjustment of the heart that we do in prayer, well, what we're asking for is that God would actually do something in us in response to his will, right? We're asking that God would step into history and that he would make an adjustment of our hearts and of our minds. Are you, are you tracking with me? So if that is true, we do actually believe then that our prayers make a difference, that they do something, otherwise we wouldn't do anything at all. We would show up to our quote-unquote prayer time and we would just sort of quietly contemplate the will of God. <laughs> we wouldn't say anything. There would be no abandonment. So if error number one is my prayer does everything... Error number two is my prayer does nothing at all, but then we have the Bible's view. And I think that the Bible's view of prayer is much better and much richer. I want you to look down with me at Colossians 4 and verse 12, if you have your Bibles. I'm not sure if I gave this one to you. No, I did. Okay, good. Verse 12. If you don't have Bibles, look on the screen. Paul writes that Epaphras, so remember that Epaphras was the guy who actually planted the church at Coloss, and he was a disciple of Paul's. And now Epaphras has returned to Paul to talk about the situation with the Colossian believers. And Paul now is reporting on how Epaphras is doing as he's closing his letter out. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always, say it, wrestling in prayer. What? Finish it for me. That you may stand in all the will of God mature, and fully assured. Epaphras, isn't that a great picture? Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you. Do you remember the great story of Jacob in the Bible? He's getting ready to meet his brother Esau, with whom he had been estranged for a long time. And the scripture says that he actually meets God. He doesn't realize it's God at first, but it's God. And he wrestles with him until daybreak. Do you remember that? And he says to this angelic being who's a representative of God. He's wrestling with God. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Right? Do you remember that? And the angel is taken aback by the strength of Jacob, the willingness to engage in that tug of war. And he says, no longer will your name be Jacob. You're not this weak, wimp, deceiver guy. But you, I'm calling you now Israel, which means he struggles because you have wrestled with God and with human beings and have overcome. Epaphras is kind of a picture of that, that in the heavenlies, in the spirit realm, Epaphras is wrestling for the Colossian believers that God would do something for him. And the presumption is that God would do something for them that he might not have done unless Epaphras had prayed. He's wrestling. He's wrestling. The Greek word that's used to talk about wrestling here is uh, agonizomenos. Touch seven people around you and say agonizomenos. Agonizo, because uh, we get the word agony, agony from that. Isn't that a great picture? Agony. 
Have you ever been there in prayer for someone where their plight or their future, your concern for them, gripped you so much that your prayer for them literally was an agony? God, help. God, move. God, arise. God, break through with kingdom. God, break through with glory. God, establish them. God, deliver them. God, help them. You feel it here. That's the picture of prayer that Paul paints. And so what I would say is that if you want like a biblical view of prayer, it's not my prayer does everything and it's not my prayer does nothing. But to pray, I would say, here's the statement I want to leave you with here, is that to pray is to enter into God's agony for the world, working with him to bring the kingdom. To pray is to enter into God's agony for the world, working with him to bring the kingdom. Do you know that God agonizes over the world? He's not wringing his hands. Okay, so God is not fretting about what to do. But what touches us touches him. The Israelites lifted up their voice and their cry because of their slavery went into his his ears and he was moved with compassion. God is defined in scripture as the gracious and compassionate and merciful God. What moves us moves him. What touches us touches him. What hurts us hurts him. And so God has a great agony for the world. And what happens when we pray is we're not in a transactional relationship with God, but what happens when we pray is that we're perceiving the heart of God and we're stepping up into the heart of God. And we're feeling the ache for the world as he feels ache for the world. And we're feeling agony for the world as he feels agony for the world. And we're letting that heart, that desire, that passion flow through us. And we become in prayer, as Paul describes, we become co-laborers together with God to accomplish his will on planet earth. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to go one page to the left just to show you an illustration of this. Paul, I think, himself was a fabulous example of what it looks like to enter into the agony of God in prayer. He wrote this, Colossians 1 and verse 3. He's writing here to the Colossian believers, so he's introducing himself to them, and he's establishing the relationship. And he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we what? When we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it had been doing among you since the day you heard and truly understand God's grace. So he's talking about what's been going on among the Colossian believers. Then in verse 9, he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped what? Praying for you. And we continually ask that God fill you, that he would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints who are in the light, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see what Paul is doing? Like his prayer was a hooking into God's great will for the Colossian believers. And his prayer almost, it's, a, it's the pouring of his heart, the pouring of his love, the pouring of his energy into that great river of love and passion that's flowing to the Colossian believers. And his full expectation 
is that as he does that, what God is going to do for the Colossian believers is establish them. Get them rooted and planted in the gospel. Fill them with the knowledge of God's will and help them bear fruit, living lives worthy of the Lord. Do you see that? It's a hooking up into the will of God. To pray is to enter into God's agony for the world. And of course, Paul can pray this way and does pray this way because he knows Jesus. And there's a great moment in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples pull him aside and they say, Jesus, Master, Lord, would you teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples to pray? And what does he say to them? Do you know it? It's the famous words of the Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What are the next lines? Thy? That's right, thy. Where? That's right. Jesus gives us that prayer on the presumption that as we do that, what we're doing is we're participating in the myriad of ways, ways that we can see and ways that we can't see with God to bring the kingdom. Do you know that's the dream of Jesus for planet Earth? It's not that we'd all get whisked away one day, but that the kingdom would come. <laughs> that God's will would be done here. That earth would look more like heaven. That our families and our neighborhoods and our cities and our country, our world would look like the dream of God. That it would look like people loving one another and living in unity. It would look like people serving each other. It would look like all people bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives these words to his disciples. And he says, here, this is your access into the great work of God to bring the kingdom to bear on planet earth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know what that's a prayer for? It's a prayer that all over the world the name of God would be adored and loved and Jesus knows that wherever the name of God is adored and loved and cherished, there also the will of God is done. There also the kingdom of God has come. So he says, you guys, this is what God is trying to do. And I want you to hook up into that. Do you see how this picture of prayer is different than we normally talk about? We normally talk about prayer in this real kind of transactional way. As though we have kind of this list of stuff that we just kind of need God to do for us. Lord, my leg hurts today. And my mom's being dumb again, you know. <laughs> and I need a new car. And we just, prayer is like, for us, it's like taking these little things and kind of going, sort of lobbing it up into heaven, <laughs> hoping that God grabs it and does something for us. For many of us, prayer is that way. But I think that prayer is more dynamic than that. I think it's more relational than that. I don't think it's transactional. Well, I've said it over and over again as I've been with you the last few weeks, that in Christ Jesus, what happens is we get tangled up with God. Prayer is an expression of that entanglement with the will of God. One of the profoundest experiences of prayer I ever had, and I, you know, like I said, born and raised in the church, but a lot of my view of prayer was very transactional. Me lobbing stuff up into heaven and hoping that somebody up there heard and did something about it. And the Lord really started changing my understanding of prayer as I went deeper in my relationship with him. And one of the profoundest experiences that I ever had in prayer was early in the days, I pastored in Denver from 2009 until 2017. And we came in and uh, there was a group of about 50 or 60 people that had been looking for a pastor. And so we stepped in and we started pastoring this group. And it was a very, um, 
it was very sort of urban, uh, in-your-face, gritty kind of community. And I just always felt that. And we lived very close to the city. We lived pretty close to downtown Denver. So the weight of the city, I always kind of felt that. And uh, we were renting a house during our first year there. It was this tiny house close to downtown. And it had this, the weirdest basement. It was like this hobbit basement. This, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the ceilings were not more than six feet tall, maybe. So you kind of had to duck as you were down there. And I loved it because it was like my little catacombs for prayer, you know. And so I'd make my coffee in the morning. And then I'd go down into my little hobbit hole. And I had, an, uh, I had one of those Ikea chairs, uh, an Ikea Poang chair that's got a little rock in it. And it was cheap, and I liked it. And so I'd set my coffee there. And I'd read the scriptures, and I'd pray. And I'd just try to enter into the presence of God. Lord, here I am before you, and I love you. And, and would you take my life and fill me with your spirit and let the fruit of the spirit come out of me and all the stuff that you normally pray, right? And I remember sitting there one morning. It was very early in the morning, and I got my coffee, and I'm in my hobbit hole in the catacombs, you know, in my chair. I'm just kind of rocking and praying. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, and I hope that you have, because God is not a figment of our imaginations. He is real, and he does come to us. And I had one of those experiences, and this is not every day in prayer for me, okay? But I had one of those experiences of God that just really marked me. And I just remember having this palpable uh, sense of the goodness and the love of God, almost like his presence physically right in front of me. And I don't know how else to describe it to you, but do you know how in the Old Testament... Um, it talked about the, the pillar of cloud and fire that went with the Israelites. And here's this, like, thing, just vibrant, right? But the glory of God. And I felt God's glory and his goodness and his kindness right in front of me. And it was so real to me that if I had opened my eyes and it, another way of saying it would be, um, it could not have felt more real to me if I had opened my eyes and seen an actual pillar of fire or something there. I mean, it was just so like, God, (laughs) and he loves me. And I knew his tenderness and his compassion and his care for me, just overwhelmed with his care. And then just as surely as I was in that moment, there was this weird sort of moment that happened where I sensed his glory almost shift. So it was in front of me. And then it almost kind of shifted to the side of me. And that same love and compassion that I felt coming towards me, it's like in my spirit, I saw it being next to me and moving with great passion and energy right towards downtown Denver. And we were just outside of downtown on this little hill so I could see downtown real clear. And in my heart, I had a picture of it. And I just, it was like, oh God, that's what you're doing. That same love and compassion that you're showing to me, you're also pouring out on the city of Denver. Like that's your dream. That's your desire. Your desire is to flood that city with life. Your desire is to flood that city with love. Your desire is to take every broken thing in that city and make it whole by the light of your love. And I felt myself in that moment working with God in prayer. All of a sudden, it wasn't me, again, lobbing stuff up to God, but it was me saying, Lord, over all of the homeless in our city, let your king. Lord, all of those that are abused right now, let your kingdom come. In our government, where we're trying to make good decisions about human life and what it means to live meaningfully together, let your kingdom come to the capital, to every church, to every home, to every neighborhood. Flood it with life 
and glory. And that was such a shifting experience for me in prayer. And what I learned in that and what I have learned over the years is that prayer has a way, when you enter into it in that way, of engaging with the goodness and the love of God, prayer has this funny way of sensitizing you to the work of God, which is always going on around you all the time. Do you remember when Jesus said in John, he said, my father is always at his work. Do you know there's never a time when God is not working his will and his ways, his kingdom and glory into the lives of people? There is not a person in the city of Pueblo. There's not a person in your neighborhood. There is not a person in your family that the glory of God is not pressing down upon to try to get them to open up to all that he is and has for them. And so what prayer is, Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And then he said, and I too am working. The whole life of Jesus was his continual openness to what God was doing around him. And what Jesus did is he stepped into the work of God that was happening. And what I have found is that prayer has a way of sensitizing you to the work of God that's happening around you. Paul writes in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, after talking, exhorting them to prayer, he says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And what I have learned is that when I devote myself to prayer, I become that kind of person. A person whose conversation is always full of grace, seasoned with salt, ready to give an answer to anybody. But Paul says elsewhere, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says to pray continually, pray without ceasing. Because when we engage in that way with God, what happens is we become well, we become the doorway through which people walk into the kingdom because of our awareness of how God is moving in their lives. And one of my favorite stories about this, I had so much stuff I wanted to share with you tonight, but this time is just racing by tonight. So one last story, and then I'll take us to prayer. One of my favorite stories about this was when I was a kid, we used to always have these traveling ministers come through and preach at our church. And we had a guy come through uh, one year who was really well known to be a man of deep prayer. His ministry was marked by this. And so my pastor, it was the first time he had ever come in town uh, to preach for us. So my pastor had him in town, and uh, they were running a few errands before the church service started that night. And so my, prayer took, uh, my, my pastor took him to the mall, uh, uh, to a shoe store there, where the guy needed to buy some new shoes for the night or something. And so he's there checking out with the shoes, and him and my pastor are kind of in this conversation together. And all of a sudden, he stops right in the middle of the interaction as he's paying for the shoes. And he looks up at the girl who's standing behind the cash register. I love this. He looks up at the girl standing behind the cash register and he says, he says, hey, I, question for you. By any chance, um, have you come to know Jesus yet? And she goes, you know, she's a little flustered. <laughs> she goes, well, no. And he goes, you have a lot to look forward to, don't you? Pays for the shoes, walks out. It's stuff like that, guys. God is at work. God is at work. And it doesn't take a lot. What it takes is us being willing to spot those moments of openness that the Holy Spirit quickens to us and then speak the name of Jesus into that. Because do you know the name of Jesus is the very word of God? It's the word of God that shatters resistance. It is the word of God that brings light into the darkness. It is the word that was spoken over creation that brought the creation into being in the first place. And it is the word that will consummate all things in the kingdom and glory. And when we're 
instant with God, immediate with God. What happens is the name of Jesus goes out into our neighborhoods, our world, our city, and God gets glory. The kingdom of God comes and the will of God is done. Let's stand together. Lord, we love you and we worship you. We thank you for the many ways in which you are at work in our families and our community, our church, our city, this region. We are praying, Lord, that we would be a people whose eyes and hearts are quickened to the kingdom. So we pray, Lord, that wherever we're defeated or discouraged in prayer, that you'd invite us into prayer all over again. And that we'd find, as the psalmist said, that we'd find joy in your house of prayer once more. Grant it, God. And we're asking that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in Pueblo and beyond because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.